I'm Al Philreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of some poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope game for some poems that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm in West Philadelphia, a few blocks from the Kelly Writers House, joined here through the quasi-magic, I say quasi for sure, magic of Zoom, and our virtual Wexler studio by Sophia DuRose, ex-circus performer. I always love saying that about Sophia, ex-circus performer from Central Florida and now writer in Philadelphia whose work has appeared in literary magazines such as Rainy Day Magazine, Revelry, National Poetry Magazine, Apricity, and whose first book of poetry, which I own and have read and marvel at, Losing Teeth, was published by Shanti Press in May of 2019 and by Jane Malcolm, of the University of Montreal, whose essays and reviews have appeared in Arizona Quarterly, A Modern, Jacket 2, and the MLA volume approaches to teaching the works of Gertrude Stein, which has been been a big help to me, Um, co-editor of a critical edition of Laura Riding's 1928 treatise on modernism called Contemporaries and Snobs, whose current book project is titled Alone Together, Five Modernist Women. And by Lisa New, Powell M. Cabot Professor of American Literature at Harvard University and the creator of Poetry in America, a multimedia educational initiative bringing poetry into living rooms and classrooms around the world, and who this year has spent a lot of time scaling Poetry in America's dual enrollment program for high school students at Arizona State University, a program which was just featured in the New York Times is helping students bridge the gap from high school to college, and who this coming year with Poetry in America will offer a full year of college-bearing courses for high schoolers, and enrollment is open now. You should sign up. And this summer, a third season of Poetry in America on PBS will be launched. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. This is great. I'm thrilled to be here, Al. It's always Te- nice to be with you. Yeah, and it's good to see you. I mean, let the let the record show this is an audio podcast, but we're seeing each other through Zoom. Yeah. Lisa, tell us briefly about the third season. Um, what's happening in the fall for that? It's coming out in September. It's coming out in September on PBS Plus, and um, the third season will have a a really wonderful mix of contemporary poets and classic poets. Uh, We're doing um, a show on Richard Blanco's wonderful poem about family vacations in Florida, um, looking for the Gulf Motel. We're doing a Sharon Olds poem about childbirth uh, and interspersing that with a wonderful Bernadette Mayer, set of Bernadette Mayer uh, excerpts. We're doing an episode on Robert Frost's Mending Wall uh, with Caroline Kennedy as one of our guests. And David Uh, Gergen, too, in that one. And David Gergen, too, in that one, doing a science and poetry episode on A.R. Ammons. And we are doing an episode on Edna St. Vincent Millay. 
That was such a setup. <laughs> How apropos. You, it's so great. Well, the, the, our audience doesn't know that we're talking about Malay today yet, but I'm going to introduce that. Jane, Jane, it was Jane Malcolm and I who talked about a poem talk, and I think together we collaborated on the decision to talk about Malay, Edna St. Vincent Malay, which happened perfectly to coincide with what Lisa's been doing. It was only then later that I invited Lisa to join us, so the Malay thing is just happening. Jane, I mean, we're going to get to Malay, but just in brief, why, why did you choose Malay for this? I think it's because I'm really interested in poets who cling to constraint even when they don't need to. And Millet is one of these uh, modernists, at least I think about her that way, who has almost, it's like a kink thing, like an obsession with the sonnet in almost a fetishistic way that the productive constraint uh, is just really interesting to me, especially because of all of her sort of swagger. So I think it was the the idea of the persona that she puts on or that the sonnet allows her to put on that really made me think she wow. would be a good person to talk about. Oh my goodness, the show is over. That was, so, <laughs> that was such a perfect intro. Sophia DuRose, you know, we're here at the, on campus together, but because of the pandemic, we hardly see each other. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. Three of my favorite people. So today, indeed, as both Lisa and Jane, Lisa implied and Jane said outright, we're going to be, we've gathered here to talk about two sonnets of the very same aforementioned Edna St. Vincent Millay. One is I Shall Forget You Presently, uh, first widely available in the book A Few Figs from Thistles in 1921. The second is very, very famous, Love Is Not All, It Is Not Meat Nor Drink. I think it's probably uh, abbreviated as Love Is Not All. A 1931 poem included in her collection, Fatal Interview. Both poems were performed by Millay. Millay performed often. Um, but our recording is interestingly undated, um, and we include it on our Millay pen sound page. We've made this audio available with permission from Holly Pepe, P-E-P-P-E. -E. I hope I pronounced that right, Holly. Um, Millay's literary executor. So here now is Edna St. Vincent Millay herself reading Love Is Not All and I Shall Forget You Presently. I shall forget you presently, my dear. So make the most of this your little day, your little month, your little half a year, ere I forget or die or move away and we are done forever. By and by I shall forget you, as I said, but now if you entreat me with your loveliest lie, I will protest you with my favorite vow. I would indeed that love were longer lived, and oaths were not so brittle as they are, but so it is. And nature has contrived to struggle on without a break thus far. Whether or not we find what we are seeking is idle biologically speaking. Love is not all. It is not meat, nor drink, nor slumber, nor a roof against the rain, nor yet a floating spar to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. Love cannot fill the thickened lung with breath nor clean the blood, nor set the fractured bone. Yet many a man is making friends with death 
even as I speak, for lack of love alone. It well may be that in a difficult hour, pinned down by pain and moaning for release, or nagged by want past resolution's power, I might be driven to sell your love for peace, or trade the memory of this night for food. It well may be. I do not think I would. I love it. Jane, let's start with you. And I'd love to hear all three of you to, talking about I Shall Forget You Presently. We are, we're, the, the sonnet is addressing a you. It's not that hard to figure out what kind of you that is. But, but then there's all these diminutives. There's a lot of little. Um, how, what's the, what is the tone of that? And how little is she making this you and why? Well, I mean, of course, what I always think about with Millet is how she's taking the traditional form of address in a sonnet, which would be a male speaker and sort of taking on that, that swagger. And, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I was thinking of alternate titles for this sonnet and it was something like, uh, you know, you are not memorable, which could maybe be the title of most of her sonnets, but yeah, she focuses on, on very diminutive adjectives. And I, what I was thinking about when you said little is how it rhymes, although you don't realize it until you reread with brittle later in the poem. And so, Little and brittle uh, go along with all those other L's, the lovely lie and the longer lived. Um, and I think it, it's part of this strategy to really sort of diminish the value of love and emphasize the importance of sex and biology. So um, I, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, what's the tone of that, at least at the beginning there, all those littles? Oh, it's just withering. <laughs> it's so caustic. Um, I, I mean that those are such fascinating littles. And one of the things they they say to me is that there are these time frames that are very familiar to her. There's the one day relationship. There's the one month relationship. There's the half a year relationship. And just which category you're in. <laughs> It's not clear yet. You're in one of these finite categories. And that, of course, is so radical. I, I learned recently um, from another scholar of Malay that Edmund Wilson, who was one of these lovers, when uh, reported that Malay had said to him that she had 17 lovers in one month, and he said famously, we should form an alumni association. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's my take on Little. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia, take it anywhere you want. But if you want, if you can include the fourth line, um, you know, there are three options for this forgetting. One is I just forget. The other is I die. <laughs> and the other is I move away. I mean, that just you know, enlarges upon the tone that Lisa was describing. What, what's your take on this opening? Um, I feel like all the the little day, little month, little half a year, I feel like she's really um, pointing out like this absolute ginormous unimportance that all of us occupy just uh, being alive. She's like, how can you not see how little we matter and how little we together matter? 
because I'm going to forget or die or move away and it actually won't matter because it only exists while it exists and then once it's over, that's it. And nature doesn't stop or care, really. Mm, Well said. Jane? Well, I think that's such a great point because writing into this Shakespearean sonnet tradition or Elizabethan sonnet tradition, there's always this obsession with like the limits of the body and how love can transcend that. And of course, the sonnet is always offered as a solution. But I think that one of those littles is also the poem, which is kind of a little even shorter than a day or a month or a year uh, sort of throwaway relationship from you know 14 lines and then it's done (laughs) oh no jane malcolm you i want to turn to lisa on this next thing because what you have done there is you've made even this poem a meta poem (laughs) because you know the we have the constraint which you can't help but thinking about lisa but also this lovely line if you entreat me with your loveliest lie i just keep thinking of this poem as not just a lie, but a lovely lie, because it's like the perfect Shakespearean sonnet. Does that, too, refer to the poem itself? It seems like she's full of lies. That, um, th- th- I, I love that idea. I, however, think about those lines also as, they, as a description of flirting, <laughs> um, which is a, a form of discourse where we don't really tell each other the truth, but it's really fun where insincerity is part of the cat and mouse and part of what drives um, the erotics. And that is another feature of the modernity of this poet, that modernity that's, you know, sending shockwaves through the sonnet and kind of invigorating that sonnet form. I would just add, because I... I didn't want to be left out of the line, uh, ere I forget or die or move away. How funny the order of that is. <laughs> <laughs> and that moving away also is, for me, so modern. A woman would only write about moving away in a newly mobile mm, America. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely right. And you think of, you know, she played upon the social uh, fact of the flapper, should generally be Midwestern, Northern Midwestern people who decided, wow, New York is so much more interesting. In her case, Maine, Maine to New York and back again. I love that point about move away. Sophia, um, the, uh, the line, it's like the pickup line response. If you entreat me with your loveliest lie, I will do what? I'll protest you with my favorite vow. And I'll, I'll tell you I like the line back. But then we go on. Can you help us with the next lines? I would indeed that love were longer lived or longer lived, as she says, and oaths were not so brittle as they are. Can you help us with any of that? Yeah, I feel like the I will protest you with my favorite vow. I was trying to work through like, what is her favorite vow? And I guess I would indeed that love were longer lived. Would her favorite vow be telling you, oh, no, I won't, I won't forget you. You're one of a kind. How could I forget this? And obviously this poem exists. So we know that's that's not true. That's actually the loveliest lie. That's the kindest thing she can do. Tell the person she's not going to forget them. Um, and make a sonnet out of the breakup. Yeah. Or whatever, right? Yeah. I love that. OK, we all laughed before we turn to the other poem. We all laughed. Our audience couldn't see this but while it was playing. But the last line, what daring. This is the, the perfect Shakespearean sonnet that ends with the phrase, 
idle comma biologically speaking hot damn <laughs> who wants <laughs> let's all say something about that jane lisa and then sophia Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked, because the other obsessive thing I did with these sonnets was make scansions, <laughs> because I'm really... Yeah. In- How does biologically speaking scan? <laughs> All right, well, it, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. It, it's just, it takes up so much of the line, like never has one word taken up so many metrical feet in a line. Um, and in order for the meter to work, it has to be stretched in the sort of like stretch ed <laughs> beyond all comprehension to take up I think six out of the ten syllables marvelous and even at the expense of that there's just a final dangling syllable there the ing so the word really really fills up the line and uh I mean I I love the word biologically because <laughs> It uh, evokes a kind of, again, like a performance of femininity, uh, but also this this constant theme in the poem, which is that, you know, biology doesn't care about love and it's not, uh, you don't need love for the furtherance of the species. Like, we, we just need to get down to what our bodies want to do. Wow, what a great reading of that. Oh, my goodness. Before we turn to Lisa on this, what um, can you read, so exaggerate the metrical... Uh, regularity and read the last couple of lines so that we get biologically read the way it should be metrically. Okay. Do you mind? No, not at all. Uh, and then in the last two, in the Volta, actually, they but there's kind of strained metricality in both of them. There's a strong stress on weather, which it should be, that, that strong stress should be in the second syllable. But okay, so whether or not we find what we are seeking, which is an extra syllable, is idle, biologically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, why is that so? It makes us, I'm reading your mind, but we know each other well. It makes us really happy that we teach and read and love poetry, that you could have a line like that at the end and, and talk about it at length. It, it does make me happy that we could talk about it. I guess I think, I mean, I think this is one of my themes today, that it's so modern. It's also saying, this is, you know, this is the the world of Margaret Sanger, <laughs> who's hanging out near Malay in the village and saying women shouldn't be having um, seven children. We all need some birth control here. Um, th- this is the moment when psychologists are beginning to discuss our psyches, our emotional lives as biologically determined. And so she's putting the Shakespeare in this old, old form, this old address to a lover that comes from a man, putting it in dialogue with um, a much more clinical, objective, and maybe gender neutral. We haven't said that Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know, wanted to be called and was called Vincent from uh, her early girlhood. She had met lovers who were men, lovers who were women. And so I think of this as exploding um, some of those gender norms and just older ideas about lover and beloved. Wonderful new topic, new-ish topic. Um, Sophia, take it wherever you want to go on gender. Yeah, 
I, I mean, as much as I love the the final couplet, I actually um, really liked the line right before to struggle on without a break thus far, because I feel like there the the break, the word break is um, enacted upon like with the M dash and I, in a in a sonnet so full of like these end stops where every line is like ending so perfectly. And here we get an M dash, which breaks that line in a way that is being talked about in the line. Like she's giving us a break in a way oh. that nature doesn't get one <laughs> from the previous line. She's like, we don't control anything, but I can put a break here, even though nature doesn't ever give us a break. We just have to keep going. But I'm a writer, so I can give you a break. I can give you a breath. And nice. I like that. And she's saying, I own this sonnet. If I want to put breaks in, I can. And there's an, a queenliness and a, and a drama queenishness that um, that I think it would be fun to talk about with reference to her reading, which yes, what a was... perfect setup! I was going to go there. <laughs> You're a natural host, so that you <laughs> you know where we need to go. An experienced host. Um, I'm going to ask Zach to play the first couple of lines of "Love Is Not All," which is actually the recording is even more. Uh, drama queenly and performative than the other, um, and a and ask Jane to start us off. I think all three of you should say something about the the sound of the voice and the performance. Love is not all. It is not meat, nor drink, nor slumber, nor a roof against the rain, nor yet a floating spar to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. So, Jane, what did you hear? Uh, Lisa said drama queenly. I think she was an adverb. She made a drama queenly into an adverb. Well, when I listened to the recordings, I I mean, first, do you expect a certain amount of sort of elocution and drama that comes with a poetry reading uh, from that era? And I, I was imagining almost like a, I don't know, a stage, <laughs> very grand. And of course, the, there's a performance, but... Uh, I associate that too, just thinking through um, the role of the speaker in both of the poems with that, um, because I think in the in the previous poem, it was nature has contrived to struggle on without a break, but there, whereas a conventional sonnet would talk about God as a kind of authority that gives the poet the authority, here it's nature, which is another kind of uh, grand force that, that somehow I think Millet uh, takes on... Um, the the ultimate speaker, you know, the one that comes from all around and everywhere. And of course, in that there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a sort of queenliness and also a kind of camp factor <laughs> that I would, mm. I think is really present, especially when we hear her voice and the sort of exaggerated performance. And I think I was reading that people were really um, sort of mesmerized by her when they saw her read that she would show up in like, gold sequin dresses and just kind of emote and everyone was fainting so i think on the very first roadshow tour she did pretty early she earned like two thousand dollars on the tour which you know who knows how much that is today a lot of money and she really got into it these recordings are not that early sophia what did you hear i mean we talk a lot uh about poet voice and we, I know because you, you're at the writer's house and we sit in on a lot of readings and poet voice varies 
but it's always poet voice to some degree. This is pretty high on the scale of poet voice. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like her her authority is her, the authority in her voice is really interesting because I feel like she's saying, "I know that I know better." Like she's scoffing at the arrogance of like a, a a previous poetic canon and like this masculine ownership of knowledge. She's like scoffing at that while still saying, "Oh, I but I know what I'm talking about." And that that interplay is really interesting, and I think that definitely comes across in the reading. Mm. Lisa, the rising and sinking and rising and sinking. I mean, one way is to see it as filling out the uh, the line <laughs> because it's the great series of monosyllables that get that conform to the meter. But it's also, you know, just a bunch of humping. It's quite quite a combination, no? <laughs> the, uh, I hadn't actually thought of that. I was, I whoo. I was oh. I was thinking you're so <laughs> What's you're, what has happened here? <laughs> really? Yeah, floating nor yet a floating spar to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. It's it reminds me actually of Poe, right? I mean, part of what she's trying to do is um, weave a narcotic spell and it, you know, you've pointed out that it's an erotic um, frenzy. I was hearing narcotic, and the voice is doing that too. It's hard for us to imagine ourselves into a world where we would pay good money <laughs> to show to see a poet in an evening gown um, <laughs> with her red hair and her whiskey voice. Um, you know entertain entertain us and use allure and flirt with us and uh and act for us and she is when you listen to those recordings you can hear the college actress she was and the provincetown playhouse actress she was and the playwright she was you know experimenting with so much stylization and also Probably, I, I once heard about the early microphones. I'm using a really groovy Yeti mic here, as maybe we all are. But those early microphones really did um, encourage people to talk like this, my darling. You know, all the whenever she sounds like every 30s movie. Oh, you know, everybody, everybody had that British accent, but they were also all projecting in this particular way. <laughs> You're good <laughs> that, at it, Lisa. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. Um, oh. I love, I think my favorite, favorite comment of today is about it being camp. And yeah, that. Well, the, the, the author of that comment, Jane, uh, I want to turn to next. Say whatever you were going to say, but I'm just going to throw another question in. Uh, Lisa was referring to that accent, which is the, uh, the R-less, that is the, the speech without the pronounced R, the R-less New York gentry. Uh, she's not native to New York. Or Maine. Or Maine. Oh, it's a different R-lessness. Wow. Very, <laughs> that's very good. This I mean, if you are Arliss, and she was very Arliss here, the one word you'd want to use is nor. Speaking of the R, I was going to talk about spar because the word spar is a buoy. Um, and I was thinking about those the, that line in Rise and Sink and Rise and Sink again is sort of bobbing. Um, but I love this idea of a narcotic erotic <laughs> 
because I think it's both at the same time. It, it's sort of this line is sort of metrically doggerel, like monosyllabic words mm-hmm. are not difficult to make into uh, iambic pentameter. And uh, but also just the ambivalence of it all. It's like if it's if it's erections or if it's men coming and going or if it's what did you say, Al humping, whatever it is. Well, I mean, it's a floating spar that keeps going up and down. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's just sort of like she—it's very blasé, which I think goes almost with the the way that she says the word um, spa, and you know, it's just sort of like oh, she's over it, <laughs> <laughs> darling. Sophia, yeah, <laughs> Sophia, the, the 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 rhetorical logical strategy here is not new. It's it's new in the way she delivers it in this particular context, but. The idea of saying a whole lot of things that are not the case, as if to suggest the case, <laughs> um, so interesting, and and it shows that she can have that satiric distance. Um, so how do you, how do you reckon with that strategy? This is not true. This is not the case. Not we're, we're not doing this. We're not. I'm not considering this. It's pretty hard not to consider them when you're being told not to consider them. Yeah, I mean. everything like casts its equal but opposite into existence right so if love is not something it's not meat then you know what it's not and that gets you closer to knowing what it is i feel like you also know what you want yeah you also know what you want if it's not meat or drink you want meat or drink go get meat or drink yeah (laughs) yeah i'm really i'm really appetitious after reading this poem (laughs) (laughs) i think she's definitely like very intentionally trying to inundate us with everything that love cannot do because I feel like it, it's important that like in this poem pain is doing something like pain is pinning you down and love is not something like pain falls onto us and we fall into love and I feel like she's very obviously like making a point that like love is something you seek and love is something you do and pain is something that happens to you pain is like a circumstance and I feel like all of the knots and the nors um, help prove that. I would like to go around three times again for all three of you on two questions. The first will be very obvious. The second will be a bit of a curveball. So wait for it. Um, the first is I'd love for all three of you to talk about the sonnet. We've been sort of talking about it. And in J- Jane's preamble talked about the sonnet. Um, but let's say a little more so that listeners who are new to Malay and new to the modern, I mean, Lisa's emphasis on the modernist sonnet, people would think, oh my goodness, how could there be a modernist sonnet with, you know, people like William Carlos Williams claiming that the sonnet was like the end of poetry. Um, So let's talk about the sonnet quality here. What's going on with it? Um, How does she innovate with it? Why is she so, what, is it kink? Yeah, why is she so addicted to the sonnet? Maybe we'll start with Jane. Oh, that was that was my theory anyway. Well, it's clearly a different kind of modernism than Williams is doing or or Eliot, you know, heaven forfend would not well, he would write a fragment of a sonnet, but never a whole one. But the tradition of the sonnet is so so circumscribed and so there's such a template. And I think that I really like the idea of constraint being productive. And that in ways that's exactly the modernist project. It's always citational, but um, it's interesting to me that as a, as a woman, woman writing in the early 20th century, she wasn't really ever uh, appreciated in the same way that, that someone like Williams was because she doesn't experiment as much with form. But what she does manage to do in such a tight space, 
you know, the 14 lines and the strict metricality is, uh, is, is pretty incredible, especially to the extent that she, as I think I already said this, but I I just want to emphasize it, that the, that a woman sort of lyric, eye, a, a female subject is not something that the sonnet is used to. So it's really sort of perverse and transgressive to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Lisa, what are your thoughts on the sonnet? It's kind of like, um, it's a feat. <laughs> it's also, it's an opportunity for virtuosity. And, you know, this absolutely goes with the the point that she's a woman claiming a, turning the tables and claiming a male form. But I think it's also like, you know, the when we go to the Olympics and we watch the compulsory you know, there's the compulsory versus the artistic. And she, it's like, I'm going to do the effing quatrain. And I'm going to do the couplet. There is a, a ferocity of mastery that, and I, it might be that I've been working on Frost recently too, where he says, it's prowess. <laughs> I, You know, why do I use form? Because I sharpen myself on it. And, Mm. uh, you know, maybe there's a little Harold Bloom here uh, as well. I'm thinking about the other people who are in it. And and so there's 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 a kind of craft competitiveness. um, Mm. So not uh, just the not just the men around her in the sexual romantic sense, erotic sense, but also the men around her poetically, both of those in these two poems. Oh, yes. And the um, and everybody else who's ever who's ever written sonnets and she doesn't even have to address them just as you know almost everybody's anonymous in a malay they're uh, anonymous and not worth mention Mm. (laughs) you know any illusion we you know we know it's a shakespearean sonnet but you know we're not hearing about shakespeare they're all invisible and she's alone on the ice Mm. well said thank you sophia what do you think about i mean you're not you're, I imagine you don't get up in the morning when you write your poems and write sonnets. Um, no, but I feel like, um, I, I don't know if I have too much more to add, but I, I do think that um, in this poem, up until the line, yet many a man is making friends with death, there, um, the lines previously are written in perfect iambic pentameter. And then this line has an extra foot, um, death, to me being the extra foot, the like thorn breaking through this sonnet and like making it a little bit different than like a typical Shakespearean uh, metric uh, scheme. And I feel like that's kind of what she's doing too. Like she's kind of this thorn in this poetic canon. She's like, oh, I like, I can do it too guys, but like I can also break the rules if I want because that's how this poem should be written. And I feel like when you use a form so well known like a Shakespearean sonnet and like, that's why you would employ that. That's why you would use those devices to like prove that you can do it too, but then do it better. Not better. Yeah. I don't know if better is the right word, but I think she would go with she would go with better. All right, here's the <laughs> curveball. Here's the curveball. So the the second poem, Love Is Not All, was written in well, it was published in 1931. Um, uh, some things that I've read suggest that it was written con- fairly contemporaneously. Uh, I'm going to, without stipulating anything, though I'm obsessed with this topic, I'm actually going to throw it at you. I think it's kind. it could be read as a Depression-era poem. 
Absolutely. And I would love, and I know that it ha- that hasn't been done much. I, th- I saw one reference to it, but I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to think about how one might put Malay, who's a very political person, you know, the end of the 20s, she was really involved with the Sacco and Vanzetti stuff. And then in the Depression, I mean, she became, she was a pacifist and became an anti-fascist, supported the entrance of the U- United States in World War II. But prior to that, was very interested in the whole problem of how the left, the literary left, was going to respond to the Depression. How do, can we read that, Jane? How? Where would we start with that? Um, I think that's a really great point because, um, the overarching, if I could suggest, like thesis of this poem is, is uh, as you mentioned, it's pointing us towards all the things love isn't, which makes me really interested in, in uh, that list of things that love isn't. So love isn't food or nourishment. It's, uh, it's not going to save your life if you're drowning. Uh, it's not oxygen. It's, it can't mend your bones or purify your blood. So basically, these are all uh, those, those are sort of essentials. <laughs> those are priorities in order to continue to exist, biologically speaking. So I do think it's interesting to consider that um, the poem views love as a kind of frivolity. Uh, I mean, we can think about how sex becomes a more interesting uh, sort of impulse or need later in the poem, like she talks about being driven and having wants. But I do think there's something to this idea that in a time where people are deprived of essentials, uh, the very idea that you would spend all this energy on something that is not nourishing is, is quite apt, I think. Yeah, great. Thank you. Lisa, do you want to take it further? I, I was thinking um, exactly what Jane said much more eloquently than I, than I was going to that that the biologically speaking of the prior um, of the prior poem really does seem to underlie this one is as well how much of who we are and what matters is determined by our biology. I find this poem kind of unpersuasive <laughs> about love ultimately it seems i mean it's like we're ki- we've got the kidneys in there cleaning the blood and the um bones and thickened lung with breath that's like i don't know copd tuberculosis it's these are real physical burdens and mm. um and and Al, I, I thought your question was, um, is this is precisely a poem for us to begin to think about within that, um, that depression era context. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sophia, I would love to hear your thoughts on this political reading. I'll just throw in my agreement with Lisa that it's not persuasive. The last line, I don't think she means. Um, it, will, it may well be. I do not think I would. I think she is willing to trade. She becomes, she wants peace. So, I, okay, I'll sell love for peace. If we could have peace, I'd give up love. Um, yeah, or trade the memory of this nice for food. I, I, I'd like for there to be more food around. If, if love needs to be sacrificed, this is no longer a love poem. Anyway, Sophia, what, where would you take this political reading further? Um, I, I was going to agree. I, I think it's a little unpersuasive in regards to love conquering, definitely. I, I think you see the struggle 
to hold on to care when you're hungry and in pain in this poem, the repetition of it well may be, it well may be. Um, and I think that it well may be is um, an acknowledgement that I'm not the only authority on struggling and needing to eat and <laughs> needing to not be in pain. But I think the poem is her saying, but because I'm alive enough to write this, I don't think I would sell your love in this exact moment. Mm. Um, I'm not hungry enough to not write it. <laughs> well said. <laughs> oh, you three are great. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to go around, and you have to be brief because we've, we've done a lot here. Um, what's a final thought? Something that you came to this conversation wanting to say, but you haven't had a chance to say yet. Any thought at all? Jane, you first. Final thought? Oh, my goodness. Um, I am interested in how the end of this poem is so amb ambivalent. And, and I think that's a, an affect or whatever the right word for it would be that we can find in both of the poems that there's kind of a, like you, you talked about, I might be driven to sell your love for peace as kind of a, a world peace wish. But part of me thinks that also embedded in that is just a desire for some peace and quiet, like just to be sort of left alone and uh, not have to be so sort of caught up all the time. And I related that also to the, the description of being pinned down by pain um, that Sophia mentioned earlier. And I just wanted to note that that Millet was sort of plagued by a lot of different sort of malaise throughout her life. So she was often in pain and often suffering either physical or mental health ailments. So um, I think there's something about those final lines and, and the fact that there isn't a volta, there's not sort of a closing couplet. It just kind of trails off in a way uh, that has to do with um, this kind of ambivalence about should I give in to my sort of libidinous, self uh, or to my basic bodily needs or do I do I actually revert back to love because clearly she protests a little too much mm. but I just love this poem so. thank you so much um yes Sophia final thought I I think it was just um like pondering the idea of the sonnet as a form generally and I I do find it really really funny that she wrote these two poems which um like invert a lot of um, themes about love and authorship. Um, like sonnets are revered as these like jewels of poetry, right? And I feel like she's taken them and like dirtied them <laughs> and uh, like gotten really angry in them. And I just think that's, I just love it. I'm like all for that. <laughs> Fantastic. Lisa, final thought? I, I love it too. Um, I am fascinated and curious to learn more myself about what it means that this is a poem of maybe as many as at least 10 years uh, further on in her career, the poem of a woman who was being very tenderly taken care of by a man who met her every need, including her need for other lovers. And but who nursed her back from drug addiction and um, poured her as many whiskeys as as many gins as she wanted and um, and and as Jane points out she was f um, frail and ailing and, and so this as a poem of a um, 
a, a speaker who uh, greets the world burning her candle at both ends and then is a little worn out. Um, you know, you, you actually don't get to do that forever. Um, you don't get to be a flapper <laughs> forever. So I don't know if any of that's going to ultimately be relevant as I inquire further into this poem, but this, this one seems to me the poem of a changed of a changed person. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you. My, my final thought will be brief. It goes back to the earlier poem. Um, I'm really interested in um, this idea of forgetting. Um, yes, of course, she can get out of this by dying or moving away, but there's something about forgetting. Um, she repeats that, I shall forget you. As I said, but as I said, I love that she added. I've I've already said that before, but now if you entreat me, etc. There's something about forgetting and remembering, and the perfection of the sonnet, not just at line ending, but even in that last biologically speaking line, getting it exactly right, that militates against forgetting. This is a woman who's not going to forget, even though she keeps talking about forgetting. She's a little obsessed with forgetting. It's her way forward is to forget things. And I really like that. Well, uh, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world. So who's ready to gather some paradise? I can do Lisa, that. please. I am so excited that my friend uh, and, I guess, former student and colleague, Adrian Rafel's book on the crossword puzzle uh, is coming out in paperback this week. <laughs> Adrian Rafel is a, an extraordinary poet. Um, she's funny, she's deep, she's clever, and um, she wrote a um, boring old dissertation that she was writing in parallel with a trade book, um, uh, both of them about the crossword puzzle. And the, the poetics of the crossword puzzle, the intellectual kind of magnetism of the crossword puzzle and the relationship of the crossword puzzle to poetry, um, some of the things she talks about in this fantastic book. So... I recommend it to everybody. Great recommendation. Um, I think it's Penguin, isn't it? Isn't it published? It's Penguin. Penguin. Yeah. Yep. That's so fantastic. Great. Thank you. Jane, gather some paradise. Yeah, I have a sort of odd book to talk about, a very Quebec book. Um, it's it's called uh, Décoissance Sexuelle, and it's by a woman named Julie Delporte, who's an artist, but also writes poetry. And it's a very slim volume that um, is essentially about dealing with sexual trauma as a woman and as a lesbian. And it's it's these little watercolors that are accompanied by poems. And it's really lovely. And I just am really interested in this idea of like sexual devolution. Somehow it relates in some way to Malay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I really recommend it. Thank you very much. Sophia, gather some paradise. Um, this book was put out in 2020 so it's, it's new to me it's it might not be new to everyone but it's glaring by benjamin crusling crusling i don't know how to say his name but um it was recommended to me because i am working on my own thesis right now in poetry 
And the, it, it's my thesis is trying to incorporate media and like memes and stuff. And this book incorporates um, a lot of those same thoughts about like media and race and school and health and family. And it's really fantastic. And I just um, wanted to shout it out because um, it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Say the title again. Uh, glaring. Glaring. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, my gathering paradise, I, I do as host get to do this. Um, I, it, the, my gathering paradise is going to get to Lisa New, but it's going to go. But it's going to go through the aforementioned Adrian Rayfield. I met Adrian through Lisa, actually, and then she was a she joined the poem talk and was totally brilliant, and and we're sort of in touch. And I'm very interested in this Penguin book, but it makes me think of why I think what Lisa New has done is a kind of paradise. You know, clearly she supported. Adrian and many other people to think about academia, to think about intellectuality as a wide thing, as a broad thing, as something that, you know, go to Penguin and, and, and write a brilliant book about crosswords that a lot of people are going to read. So that gets me to Lisa. You know, I, I really think that uh, it's important for everybody to know how surprisingly hard it is to be set up in academia and then decide to be I don't know if public intellectual is the right word. Maybe it's not the right phrase. Maybe it's not. But to reach outside, to do things, to give a lot of stuff away, resources, to make connections. A lot of us talk about, but only a few people do, with people who are teachers and high school students and college students at community colleges and large state universities, and really just to share it all. And it is, as Lisa knows really hard to do it's hard to maintain um just to get poetry onto pbs it's not a s insignificant thing and she's too modest to uh to celebrate that because she's in the middle of it for one thing but i wanted to so there you go well thank that, you so much oh you're uh, welcome I, there's applause so going kind. on here that people don't can't see because it's audio only well, that's all the idle, biologically speaking, we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests. This was a great conversation. Sophia DeRose, Jane Malcolm, and Lisa New, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Max Crandall, Julia Block, and Larissa Lai will join me to talk about Sarah Dowling's relatively new book, Entering Sappho. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us next month for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>